hello to all of you. Or should I say, low high? It's better to go from the very lowest to the highest than to try to start at the highest, because then you can probably go low pretty quickly. Yes, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. And for those of you that are new, I just briefly want to explain to you how I will be sharing this message. There's a verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, around verse 11 or 12, that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is what I will seek to do, is to speak as the oracles of God, to allow God to speak through me to you. How does that happen? How is it that I can have God speaking out of my mouth and it be not my words, but the actual oracles of God? Well, it doesn't mean that there's not myself that could be cloud the message with my own understanding and my own words. But I will seek to allow the Spirit of God to speak through me what he would be saying to you as an individual and to the corporate body of Christ for this particular hour and time. And we are to seek to do that. And the way it happens is when we allow the Spirit of God to be rele released in utterance out of our mouth. The verse that explains this very clearly is found in Revelations chapter 19, where the Apostle John is prostrate before the angel. And the angel says unto him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we facilitate the Spirit of God to rise up through us and to speak those words that are coming from God to one another, it is out of the spirit of prophecy. Oh, some people might term it if they don't have a particular background, oh, are you channeling God? Yes, we are becoming a channel through which the Spirit of God can speak. And the way it happens is when we learn to worship God in spirit and in truth and be in a conscious state of worship while we are giving the message. That is why it emphasizes in this verse, worship God for the testimony, that which truly testifies of the reality of who Jesus Christ is and honors and glorifies Christ, is out of worship that brings forth the spirit of prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When my soul or my spirit and soul are fully abiding in a reciprocative, engaging relationship with the Spirit of God, the holy, pure Spirit of God, God can speak His words that are mere 
not mere, pardon me, that are more than mere words. As Christ said, the words I speak are spirit and are life. To facilitate this, I cast lots pretty well almost every day on the Word of God, where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth. And then I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour that includes making of notes. And so what I will be sharing here today, I will share out of the notes I've made in the approximately last seven days that I have meditated on the Word of God. So there's no preparation in this message. I don't know what I'm going to share. I probably hardly remember most of the notes. As I'm just looking at them for the first time now, from way back, beginning on June the 4th, which is Saturday. And I want to just briefly share the various passages I received and let God speak through me those words that he would speak concerning these various passages that I was led to by the sovereignty of God who in his omniscience knows before time the very number and chapter that I would end up being led to by the casting of lots. Because his presence is attached to every particle of existence with intelligence, he is all-knowing. Even modern physicists that aren't believers believe there is something like the neurons of a brain that are filling all space, including where there is no existence of anything. And they believe that there is intelligence attached to every particle from the particle physics analysis that they've done from the large collider collisions, which is another topic. Okay, so I'm just going to get into what I received this week and my earnest prayer now is that Father God in heaven that you would cause your word to prevail to minister to myself to minister to those people that need to hear this word and to speak this message to the body of Christ for this particular day and hour thank you for what you will do by the mighty working of your spirit amen I want to start with Mark chapter 13 that I received on June the 4th. And so I will just first turn to that particular chapter, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is Christ foretelling about what will happen in the last days. Now, probably the theme chapter that I will be sharing is not Mark chapter 13, but Galatians chapter 3. But I briefly want to touch on the various things that I received from these chapters first. In Mark chapter 13, we are commanded to take heed in case we are deceived by any man, because the deception of false Christ shall increase greatly. And so Christ is describing this in verses 5 to 13. He says, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive 
Not a few, but many, it says here. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be. How many of us become troubled as believers when we are commanded not to be troubled? And he goes on to say that the end shall not. This is not the end. But the end shall not be yet. Then there's going to be the next. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places and there shall be famines and troubles. These are, he says, the beginning of sorrows. So we could look back at the nations that rose against nations in World War I and World War II and say, well, that's just the beginning. There's much more to come. Now, it's not just then that nations rose against nations. They did rise as nations against each other shortly after the time that this passage was written by the apostles under the guidance and utterance of the Holy Spirit, where God brought to their memory everything that Christ had told them. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And so there's that. There's persecution that begins to happen. And I'm not going to go on and read this whole passage of Scripture as I'm touching on these various passages right now. So if we go on in this passage without me reading it, basically what he says in verses 14 to 23 is, at the time the abomination is set up in the temple of Israel, people are to immediately flee to the mountains, because at that time there will be great affliction as has never existed on the earth. That means that because this is describing that the temple in Israel is built at this particular time in the future, that that is sometime yet in the future and probably not a great distance away as we see very strong evidence that things are leading up to the temple being soon rebuilt. There's a great movement in Israel towards this and the pressure is mounting. And of course the Arabs that have been doing the um, very demonically inspired things, those that are believers in Islam, to stab innocent people. Because what is it over? It's over the temple because they feel threatened that the, the temple is going to be restored. And because they're just so determined that their mosque is going to be in that place and it's not going to have some other temple adjacent to it. Even though the Jews have conquered the land and could have plowed the temple down a long time ago, that, that is the, the mosque, and restored the temple. We are living in a time just before that time, and it is paralleled in the spiritual realm. God is seeking to restore his spiritual temple and his people corporately in local assemblies around the world. He wants his house to become a house of prayer again. The counterfeit temple blows their loudspeakers calling people for prayer. But where are God's people blowing the trumpet of alarm, blowing the trumpet of awakening, 
blowing the trumpet of calling his people to pray and to seek his face so that his temple can be restored as living stones built together as an habitation of God through the Spirit throughout the world. The Lord's zeal will perform it. The question is, will you be part of his plan and his ultimate purpose for history, which is his corporate bride to come forth, his house of prayer, his temple, that he will inhabit with the fullness of his glory in local assemblies around the world, which will accumulate in the restoration of the physical temple in Israel and of his glory filling that temple which is the final ultimate temple described in the book of Revelations chapter 22 and 21, which is approximately 1,500 kilometers square. That's length, breadth, and height. Quite a scene, like an incredible jewel coming down from heaven onto the earth. But before that time, we have these smaller temples that have existed and have been restored in the past, but we are about to see the restoration of the temple that the Antichrist will sit in and declare himself to be God. And so Christ is saying that when this abomination is set up in the temple where the Antichrist sets something up to declare himself God in the place of God, that at that time there will be such affliction as has never existed in the history of the world. Affliction and loss of life, no doubt, as well. That is the time where you don't even have time to go into your house to take something, the Lord says. When you, the moment you see that set up, you flee. Are we going to be those that witness these things? No doubt we are. But far more important than these things is that we are part of the restoration of all things. As it says in Acts 4, I believe it is around verse 12, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking concerning Jesus Christ, it says, Whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. There will not be the restitution of all things as described in Revelations chapter 10, where the seven thunders utter their voices, and there's that great mystery of the seven thunders that accumulates in God's ultimate purpose that it describes. In fact, maybe it is worth going briefly to Revelations chapter 10 right now and looking at that particular passage of Scripture. I did at one time memorize the whole book of Revelations, but I wouldn't take a chance now of just trying to do that after such a long time of not repeating it through by memory. And it says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth 
and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roared. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. We know that this mystery involves the consummate purpose of God, which is described by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, where he describes how he was given this mystery. To declare. This is a mystery. It is the mystery that is described, which is the bride of Christ. Where Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What will bring in the consummate purpose of God? is when he fully inhabits his corporate bride upon the earth, when the fullness of his glory can fill his people in assemblies of worship in every nation upon the earth. In fact, the Lord is so zealous for his bride that he says that as truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the earth, the Lord. And in another passage, it says that at that time, praise will bud forth throughout all the earth as the buds that come forth from a garden. This praise is coming forth from the temples of his glory in every community and city upon the earth that has responded to become part of his ultimate purpose. So that they as individuals find their ultimate meaning and purpose in cooperation with his ultimate purpose and being part of his family and doing the work that they have been called to fulfill with their unique gifting. Yes, you as an individual can find your destiny, your ultimate meaning and purpose. And it's only found in something that is I could talk about because it's so glorious and wonderful for a long time. Look at the fact that in everything that is created, there are male and female counterparts. This is typifying something of ultimate meaning, and that is the marriage of the Creator with His creation, and in particular, His people. It means that even the animals, and all the things in creation come into a place of liberty and harmony with God and what they were created to fulfill. This is clearly described in Romans chapter 8, where it says the whole creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. I'm not going to be turning to all of these passages 
and quoting them in depth. But this is God's ultimate purpose. And in Mark chapter 13 here, we see the signs that will happen towards the end. But the important thing is not that we're troubled by these outward events, but these outward events bring us all the more into a place of such a deep union and intimacy with God in our individual lives and corporately when we gather that we do not limit God anymore from fellowship and fullness with us as individuals and corporately. I have been writing a book. It hasn't taken me long to do this particular book. I've only been doing it a bit of time here and there, but I have a book that I am writing on how to bring forth assemblies throughout the world that will not limit the glory of God. That will allow the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit his corporate assemblies. And I give even suggestions of the best kinds of meetings and when to have them. Even in conducting communion, how to conduct it in the most full, reverential, deep and meaningful way before God. It covers every aspect. It is a template so that even if a church is a denomination, they can look at that template and say, this is the way we should be meeting with God. And this is the way we should be members one of another and practicing membership with one another so that not only do we come into a deep, intimate relationship with God, Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but with one another. Because iniquity is abounding, the love of many is waxing cold. And though they may not even be aware of the hardness that is in their heart, it is there. It is evident in what is happening in relationships, in their own lives personally, with their wife, with their family, and with the body of Christ. But Christ's prayer, his cry that goes up, with deep groanings and travailings, is that we be one as he is in the Father. That we be so one with him. And therein we cannot help but be one with one another in a deep reciprocative love relationship that allows the fullness of his glory to indwell us and to indwell his people corporately in assemblies around the world that will cons consummate in that ultimate restitution of all things in the return of Christ for his bride in the coming down of the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, the family of God in heaven uniting with the family of God on earth that has come into the same beautiful unity in the midst of incredible darkness and suffering upon the earth. This is why it's clearly described in Isaiah 24. Maybe I should turn to Isaiah 24 and just read a few of those verses to give you a picture of what will happen in the last days. 
In Isaiah 24, we have the description of the great earthquake that is also described in the book of the Revelation where it says, And the nations fell. And so great was that earthquake that all the nations fell. All the large, tall skyscrapers fell apart. That is the seventh seal. When Christ returns to the earth, there will be an enormous earthquake that will destroy the cities upon the earth throughout the world, which will destroy that antichrist system that will be at that time upon the earth. Now, let me just turn. I just want to go to Isaiah 24 here and just read a few verses. I'll read the first verse. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And he goes on to describe that this will be true because of the condition of people from the most elite to the basest. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with the master, as with the maid, so with the mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury. The land shall be utterly emptied, utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken his word. And it goes on to describe the languishing of the earth. Because why? Well, it explains it here. We'll, we'll continue. The land shall be utterly emptied. I told, already read that. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. That is a condition that is being described just before the return of Christ. Under the reign of the Antichrist, which is anti, in every sense of the word, Antichrist. And it's we don't need to tell others the descriptions in the Bible of the horrors of that time where God allows, yes, he allows the sun to even become seven times hotter and scorch the inhabitants of the earth as it describes in Revelations. It's also described here. I suppose it might be good to be towards the northern countries at that time, possibly. The reason is because they broke, the inhabitants of the earth broke the everlasting covenant. What do you think that everlasting covenant is? It's typified in marriage of a husband with his wife. They have transgressed the laws. They have changed the ordinance. Have they today changed the meaning of marriage? Yes. They have broken the meaning of marriage, which is a symbol of the everlasting covenant, not only between a husband and his wife, but of our relationship with God. And the prophecy is clear that because of this, there will become tremendous heat upon the earth, not only heat but wars, and that few men will be left. 
still we have a time where there's relative ease and abundance around the world. Now, I'm not going to go into this whole passage of Scripture here, but this is describing a world system that has become, as described in verse 10, the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up and no man may come in. Yes, world economic collapse. People are crying for wine in the streets, but there's no more. This city doesn't represent one city on the earth. It's spoken of in the book of Revelations. The city called Babylon is represented in Rome, but it's represented in the world systems of democracy that sit upon the many waters of the earth, as this woman does, that once were a virgin, but now, in defiance in the very face of God, are blaspheming his holy love that is so pure. And so the result is the obvious consequences that we reap what we sow. There's always a cause and effect. And so we go on in this passage, and we have an amazing description in verse 13, where it says, When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree. And as the gleaning of grapes, when the vintage is done, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. And what shall they cry? Well, look at this. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. In the midst of the destruction of the world system, in the midst of fires, there will be congregations that are in such an intimate relationship with God and with each other that they will literally be praising God in the midst of all this destruction and be delivered from it. And it goes on to say in verse 16, From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. And it goes on to describe the judgment that will come upon the earth because they have rebelled against God and broken his laws and his everlasting covenant. And it goes on to say, in verse 19, the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. These people that took power unto themselves and became dictators that oppressed the righteous and the innocent with their laws. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit. 
and shall be shut in up the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion, and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients gloriously. Can you imagine the day when God returns, and his glory is so bright that the moon and the sun are insignificant compared to the brightness of that glory that is emanating with incredible love that is so pure that it will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. It is the flaming holiness of God in love that is a consuming fire against all those things that would be contrary to love. So we have this description in Mark, chapter 13, of what will happen in the last days. From verses 24 to 27, it says, After that time of great tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon, and there will be powerful meteor showers from the heavens, and the stars from heaven will fall out of their positions. Because the earth, obviously, if it's reeling to and fro, you're going to find stars in different positions because the earth is also out of its normal position. Then the Son of Man shall appear with great power and glory. The generation that sees these signs begin to take place will not pass away until all is done that Jesus Christ mentioned of these signs. And he returns. We are the generation that has begun to see these signs take place. We are to watch and pray because we do not know the specific day or hour when the Son of Man will return. We are to watch so that we are not found spiritually asleep. And so earlier I was talking about the temple that God is jealous for. His ultimate consummate purpose is focused upon this and all of these shakings that I just described of God's judgments are because he is jealous for his house. That is why the shaking begins first at the house of God as it says in the word of God, judgment must begin first at the house of God. It is when we begin as individuals to judge ourselves in humility before God instead of judging one another, to judge ourselves out of the genuine fear of God, that we will begin to see God restoring his house. And so I briefly want to share that one of the things I believe God is calling churches to do, most of them do not have a lot of people that come to pray at the prayer meetings. Generally speaking, it's always a remnant that is a lot less than 50%. Let's not complain or be upset that that's the case if we're spiritual leaders of a church. Let's begin to make his house a house of prayer. Let's begin when we have our large corporate assemblies one or two times a week or more. To begin those meetings with the leadership getting on their knees and on their faces and calling his people to do the same. It should be the normal mode of meeting with God. That we come before his presence not presumptuously, but in absolute awe and reverence of whose presence we are coming in. 
that we would be still and know that he is God. That we would know how to love God and, and treat him as so exceedingly precious and not as common. That we would learn to tremble before his footstool and utter awe of his great goodness and love and mercy towards us out of the fear of God. Knowing our own weakness and infirmity and unworthiness to receive his mercy, but being filled with thankfulness out of humility and the fear of God that we have such a wonderful relationship with him, that he's forgiven us so much. That we have been re reconciled to him. Just being aware of who God is and his holiness is enough we don't have to even be mindful of what we've been saved from. If we see how awesome and great he is, that he would even receive us and that we could have a close, intimate relationship with him. It should break all the hardness in our hearts and cause us to be in humility, in a humility that points us to such an honesty of heart that we repent of all those things that are exposed out of that honesty of openness of heart before the presence of God. And that openness and honesty of heart before the presence of God should bring us again, pointing us to the place of absolute humility, which is the place of absolute intimacy with God, out of which springs forth the assurance of great acceptance and joy in the presence of God that is pure and not puffed up. God is calling us as his people to know what it means to allow him to be the one we are conscious of in our assembly far more than the pastor. And when we as leaders in the body of Christ become truly those that wash one another's feet and wash the feet of the sheep as Christ washed the disciples' feet, we will release our brothers and sisters that we seek to serve, to be everything God has gifted them and called them to be. We will allow them freedom to share out of a pure heart in the meetings. And if some share out of an impure heart, we will learn to let God expose and deal with them. But we will not allow ourselves anymore to be Controlling things in a shell that we have made that limits the glory of God moving through the body of Christ. Moving through each member of the body. When we meet and we are conscious that he is in our midst, there will be none of those in the body that will be so presumptuous as to speak out of motives that are impure and the draw attention to themselves, for everyone will be caught up with the awe of the one who is walking in their midst, the great I am that I am. They will not think that the meeting depends upon them anymore, nor will they act in such a way that it is evident that everyone is always focused upon them, and that the control of the meeting is, a, is through them. No, they will facilitate God to move through each member of the body so that more abundant honor comes, as Paul the Apostle said, 
that God has so tempered the body together that he gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks, so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. When we release as leaders those that are our precious sheep and truly love the weakest and insignificant among them, it releases the Spirit of God to bring more abundant honor upon those that are not attracted in the natural, that are not looked up to in the natural, so that those that would tend to be looked up to in the natural are humbled. That is the mountains coming down. A pride. And in Proverbs it says that contention comes by pride. The spirit of denominationalism, where we denominate one another, it says in the Word of God that in Jesus Christ there is neither male nor female, barbarian. When we are in Christ, we do not denominate one another by our uniqueness or anything else, whether it's a negative thing or a positive thing. We are only conscious of Him in our midst and of wanting to let Him be released so that His glory can come upon those that are the least significant and use them in a powerful way to humble those who would tend to be looked up to. And so we have that verse in the Word of God and that song that says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So to yourselves in righteousness break up your fallow ground, for it is time for the Lord to come and rain righteousness on you. So I caught the tune out of place there in the last part. It says, So to yourselves in righteousness break up your fallow ground, for it is time for the Lord to rain righteousness upon you. And so we are those need to do this on a regular basis in our meetings. Most meetings nowadays start with dancing and joy. They do not start with learning what it is to be in reverence and humility before God and to weep before Him and to know brokenness and humility, out of which springs forth very deep leap liberty and deep joy that is in the Holy Spirit and that is sensitized to those that are suffering among us. How many times people jump around and they are glorying in the Lord and there's nothing wrong with that in itself. It's a wonderful thing. We should do all more and more of it, but to the neglect of being sensitive to whose presence we're in 
in a significant measure and to those that are suffering in our midst in a significant measure. God is wanting to restore his temple and part of it involves that and of course in the book I've written there's a lot more details of all that I believe he would have happening in the assembly so that he is not limited and the fullness of his glory can come into the body of Christ in these last days. And so I've shared a lot here on Mark chapter 13. I'm just going to let God lead me in his word. The emphasis is that we are to watch, which means to keep awake in the Greek. It's from the word, a word that means to awaken. Let's see. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly right. To rouse from sleep, from sitting or lying, from disease, from death. To rouse from obscurity and inactivity and ruins and non-existence. To arise and be who God has called you to be. Enter your destiny. It's a long enough time that you've been in the prison house of your own making because you love the world so much there's hardness in your heart. That is what is happening in the body of Christ. They worship the gods of amusement and they don't even know they're worshiping them. But it's evident in the fact that they spend abundance of their time and watching sports and all of these things and little time in prayer. And so there's, their hearts are hardened. They don't know an intimate relationship with God. And so that hardness results in divorce being rampant in many churches because husbands and wives have not learned what it is to come before God on their knees in humility so that they can come before one another in the same humility and have the grace of God to humble themselves before one another and, as it were, wash one another's feet in encouragement and admitting our faults. We are to share one another's faults as the Word of God says that we might be healed. True healing happens when there is that humility before God that births a humility that is genuine before one another to genuinely share one another's faults and admit where we are short and ask the other brother or sister, please pray for me, help me, because in this area I keep failing God and I want to please him with all my heart. When that happens, we will see real healing happening in our midst because there will be a genuine oneness with Christ and a oneness with one another. This is what releases the greater works in our midst. And it requires learning to wait on God. Waiting on God requires ceasing from our own tendency to self-initiate things before God in prayer and out of that in every other way because we fail to wait on Him. We are insensitive to His voice, therefore we are filled with presumptions to go ahead and do our own thing and we suffer the consequences as a result of our own ways that is used as a lasso or a cornering shell to corner us into the place like the prodigal where we repent and come to our senses, come to the place of awakening. But if we would wait on God as the early church waited on God in the books of, book of Acts, we would do that in our own personal lives, 
It comes out of the genuine fear of God. If you don't have the genuine, or if you do not choose to genuinely fear God, you can never come to the place of absolute reverence where you learn to be still before him. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, when you come before the presence of God, be not hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. We learn to wait on God. Doesn't mean that we don't have liberty to speak freely and fully before God. But it means that we do it out of a pure heart. Because we've learned not to do it out of presumption. We've learned to be still and to speak when it comes from the depth of truly who we are before God. So God will bring us then into our destiny. Then he will restore the years that the cranker worm and the locust has eaten in our lives when we seek his face. Yes, there needs to be times when the whole nation comes before God in a call to three days of fasting and prayer. There was a time when President Lincoln called the whole nation together to fast and pray for three days because of the crisis that was in the land. Can we mobilize today to do such a thing? Let's believe God that if the body of Christ begins to do it, that it will accumulate in a nation being saved and turned back to God before the serious judgments come. And it's too late. So we go on in the Word of God. I hardly touched on anything today except Mark chapter 13. And I've almost been preaching for an hour, but I will continue to just touch on some of the things I received. On June the 6th, I received Isaiah 57. And I said this, fear is at the root of apostasy and rebellion against God. And it is there because people chose not to fear God. The reason people have fear in their lives is because they chose not to genuinely fear God, which is a healthy fear on delight, which is a reverential fear, but it's more than a reverential fear. Now, I could talk in depth on the fear of God as I have written, I'm writing an in-depth book on it and have meditated on it much. But I'm not going to get into that right here except to say this. That the genuine fear of God involves a choice to recognize God for the reality of who he is. And the reality of who God is, is that quality that could only possibly obtain, contain unlimited life and power without dissipating it or being corrupted by it. The reality of who God is, is the ultimate perfection of love that is so great that it is a blazing fire of judgment in its integrity and purity against the slightest that is contrary to love. Love being that which always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment, which thereby would have corruption in it because it would make choices that are less than the highest lasting good. It is a love that is the holiness of God the absolute purity of his love, that is the foundation for God to be transcended in this love in such an ultimate expression of love that is so great in its purity 
that God himself could humble himself more than you, a mere creature, in the quality of his full being, the full expression of his being, the one and only expression of his being is his son. The word son means expression. The word expression means word. Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is the full expression of the Father that is the originator, that is the one that sees the end from the beginning into the time and space realm. And he humbled himself. Yes, God himself humbled himself. He was manifest in the flesh and he humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. And he suffered more than you, a mere creature. Have you received that love? Have you repented and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? I receive your forgiveness. I want to enter my destiny with you. God is calling us as his people to enter our destiny. And it begins with recognizing God and his holiness and our undoneness in the light of his holiness and crying out like the publican that Christ described that beat his breasts and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It means a deep cry from the heart. In Romans 10, where it says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, the next verse a little bit down says, and whosoever shall call upon the Lord, name of the Lord shall be saved. It is a deep call from the heart. It's not a mere intellectual assent. It's a recognition of who God is and our undoneness before him. That is what is true, genuine belief in God. that brings salvation, that brings genuine spiritual rebirth. And it has happened from the time of Adam and Eve till now that people have called on the name of the Lord out of that recognition, which in it holds the recognition of the Son, because Christ said, whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to the Son. And so they recognize the Son from the time of Adam and Eve, for the Son is the full expression of God into creation. And they recognized God expressed to them in his great holiness, out of which springs his great mercy and grace, his love, his ultimate expression of love that does not violate the integrity of his love. And they cried out unto him and were born again of the Spirit. Why do you think Christ expected Nicodemus to know all about it before he died on the cross? And the leaders to have known about this. He marveled that they wouldn't know that there is this transformation in the soul that has been happening from the beginning of time, from the time of Adam and Eve. This is the everlasting gospel I am preaching that is described in Revelations chapter 14 that will take place in the last days where it says, And I saw another angel fly through the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach. And I'm not saying I'm the individual. I am saying that many people, just like myself, are preaching this everlasting gospel. I am one of them among many. And it is the message for the last days. It is everlasting because it has been preached even from the time of Adam and Eve. And it was in God even before the world was created, as the Word of God says. 
In Revelations 18, the Lamb was slain. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. It wasn't only in a capacity in God, but it was a reality in the very being of God that His Son was slain before the world was created. He had that ultimate moral quality of love. Already is a reality that He would actually have such an ultimate quality of love to humble Himself more than you, a mere creature and suffer more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be restored in a love relationship to God and be part of his corporate bride for these last days. In Isaiah 57 here it says, And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me nor laid it to thy heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? See there in that verse? There's two fears. Of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? There's the negative fear which is of the enemy, which is a consciousness of loss in relation to self. That fear has torment, as is described in 1 John. And so we live a lie. But if we choose to genuinely fear God, we come into the recognition of ultimate love, which casts out all fear, as it says in John. Perfect love casts out fear. Those that put their trust in Elohim, the Almighty's one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, shall possess the land and inherit the holy government of God. That is what it is saying in Isaiah 57 here. Starting in verse 14. And shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. And it shall be said, cast up, cast up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block. I repeated it. Out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabit eternity, whose name is holy. That's saying whose being is is holy. Name in Hebrew means the expression of one's being to others. The expression of who one really is to others. Whose name is holy. A love that is so pure that it does not tolerate the slightest that is contrary thereto. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. God is merciful, but he wants us to enter into the genuine fear of God, that we would know a contrition and a humility before him, because he that dwells in the high and holy place will then indwell us fully. When we come to that place, out of the fear of God, God's wrath could easily burn forever against those that have rebelled, but he is mindful that the spirit of these should fail before him if he contended forever. That is what that verse is saying. Yes, he inhabits eternity. The Father 
sees the end from the beginning and doesn't only see it, he inhabits it in very personage. And if God was not in very personage in the three ultimate aspects of existence, as the Father beyond time and space, as the Son in time and space, and as the Holy Spirit filling all space, he would be less than God. And so he is Elohim, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Almighty's one. June the 7th, I received Jeremiah 27. But more than Jeremiah 27, I received 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now for time, I'm not going to speak long in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But it is evident that what God is saying here is that he is wanting us that call ourselves prophets or spiritual leaders or having this gift or that gift to humble ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> and I might just turn to it for a few verses in it. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll just turn there right now. This is about the Apostle Paul, who because of the abundance of revelations he received, experienced God humbling him. And he mentions that in this passage. First, or pardon me, not 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, pardon me for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul the Apostle says, speaking of himself, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such a one was one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Such a one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but I forbear lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Now there are those that have tremendous giftings in the body of Christ as prophets, as apostles, and it is easy to allow people to think too highly of us. Because God has entrusted us with such powerful giftings. And this is a dilemma to many of these leaders because many of them, I sure, do not want people getting their focus on them as if it was within them to be such a reciprocal for God. Such a channel for God. And so... Paul the Apostle says here, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, 
my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The secret to abiding in a relationship with God that is in the place of humility and therefore in the place of intimacy with God that allows the fullness of his glory to dwell in us is in the fear of God. Even speaking of the Messiah, it says in Isaiah, and I need to actually memorize where it is. I think it might be around Isaiah 13, but forgotten right now. It says concerning the Messiah, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Might be around verse 5 or 6 of Isaiah 13. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. The secret to a oneness in God, even with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is their absolute awe of one another. Their absolute reverence that brings a total response of thankfulness, of love to want to enlarge. So that the Son says to the Father, yes, I am willing to condescend and to suffer greatly because I see how wonderful and beautiful you are, Father, in your glory and in the purity of your love and your holiness. I am so reverent of the purity of your holiness, the purity of your love, that I want to enter into a greater enlargement of what is totally satisfying. And so, Father, I will go and I will suffer and humble so that I can bring to you a corporate bride that you can be enlarged with. And the Father says, Son, I am willing, even though it pains me, to let you go through all this because I want you to inherit a beautiful corporate bride. And there is this reciprocative relationship but the root of it is in the genuine fear of God that keeps us in the place of humility. Therefore, we do not seek to allow in any way people to look up to us as God uses us, but we seek to be hidden and to flee from such things and to reprove those that would look on us as if it was in ourselves to have such giftings and such grace from God. And so there are many times when those that have these powerful giftings often have infirmities in the flesh, though they are the very ones that are being used to bring powerful healings to others. May we be those as leaders in the body of Christ that facilitate in these last days the fullness of his headship, that we do not limit the fullness of God's glory coming into the body. That we do not allow ourselves to be put on a pedestal and others to look upon us. Or that we do not unknowingly even form a shell in the meeting where everything so depends on us leading the meeting. It doesn't mean that we don't do our part in leading and guiding the body as a pastor. But it does mean that we allow the head, Christ the head to be the one that is walking in our midst. And that we only do what we do out of the leading of the Spirit of God. And so, basically, I wrote this concerning 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> it is clear that the Apostle Paul recognized 
that because God had given him such great revelations, including being caught up into heaven, that God allow, had allowed an infirmity in his body from a messenger from Satan. This could have been an epileptic attack or some other infirmity with his eyesight. He asked God to take it from him, but the Lord himself told him that he was allowing it to keep him in the place of humility and weakness, that he might be able to receive a greater measure of the grace of God. God's powerful working that also confirmed Paul's apostleship with signs and wonders and mighty deeds was all the more powerful through him because he was accepting whatever God was allowing. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't believe God and beseech God and ask God, like the Apostle Paul, to heal us. In fact, if we learn to have the genuine fear of God, I'm sure he will because we will not put ourselves in a position that does not reprove those that would wrongly look up to us and that does not allow us to form a shell out of people putting us on a pedestal. God bring us as leaders in the body of Christ and all of us, because this can happen to every member, to the least, to the greatest, to be always allowing God. There will be times in the meetings where it will seem that we feel useless and God's not using us. He's allowing death to work in us that life might work in others. And then the next day, our close friend, he's feeling that way and we are being used powerfully and being uplifted. This is part of the mysterious relationship that happens that is so organic under the headship of Christ and so wonderful. And so let us gladly learn to be in that place where in the midst of the body, we gladly delight in being put into the place of hiding and humility before the whole congregation, more than being put in the place of wanting to be seen or known, even if that motive is so slight. I believe this is a good place for me to finish this message, although I want to just briefly mention some of the other passages I received. I really wanted to speak on Galatians chapter 3. That was the one I was planning to speak on. And that was the other passage I got. And the other one was 2 Corinthians 13 and 14. Um, and so I, I will just, uh, I, I can't share a lot in Galatians. It's I've been preaching for a long time now, but I do want to just, briefly maybe read a bit of what I shared on Galatians here. In Galatians chapter 3, the real theme that stands out to me is the statement, uh, the hearing of faith. Um, Paul the Apostle mentions this towards the beginning of Galatians, and I'll just briefly right now turn to Galatians chapter 3 and just point this out. <clears throat> He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth crucified among you? This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And so I mentioned this about 
the meaning of this word. I looked up in depth the meaning of this word. Without going into that, I'm just going to amplify what this word means. The hearing of faith is the catching of understanding, revelation, and direction from God out of the exercised moral persuasion of selfless trust from one soul in the one true God, Elohim. This is in the ultimate trustworthiness and worthiness of the constitution of the being of God to hold ultimate forever enlarging authority and power over all towards the ultimate good. It is in this initial reciprocative response and ongoing reciprocation of fellowship that we receive the Holy Spirit and ongoing reciprocation that we experience God's working by the Holy Spirit in our midst in miracles, signs, healings, and wonders. As long as we are in a vital, abiding, reciprocative relationship, we are in the experience of what is called the hearing of faith, which is the catching of understanding and revelation and direction from God, which is coming out of the exercise of our soul and spirit in faith, which is moral persuasion in who God is in the very constitution of the being of God that is revealed as ultimately trustworthy that we believe in and because we see him as ultimately trustworthy by perceiving what is only ultimately trustworthy, which is this constitution that can only make up ultimate, ultimate love, which is the holiness that without violating the integrity of God's love is transcendent in atoning mercy and grace that is in God himself, in the being of God himself. Now in Galatians here, in verse 3, verse 8, the scripture, it says this, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham. Yes, as I said, this is the everlasting gospel I'm preaching. And it was preached unto Abraham and it was preached unto Enoch, who had such a close relationship with God that he was translated. And it was preached from the very beginning of the world. And it existed in God before the world, not as a potential, but as an actual reality. So this gospel was preached to Abraham. Because the God, why? How is it preached? Because the gospel contains the message of what can only be genuinely and ultimately trustworthy. And this is only in God's love being ultimately pure in integrity, which is God's holiness that requires judgment against all corruption. Out of this foundation in God's being comes wholeness, and thus everlasting ultimate goodness in God's being, able to always have been, be, and to have become the only perfect atoning sacrifice. There is ultimate trustworthiness because God's being is able to ensure ultimate goodness and destiny by the power to forgive without violating his holiness. And so we see this written in also in Galatians 3.17 where Paul says this, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, 
The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So this covenant was confirmed before of God in Christ. Before the law was given. Where was it confirmed? By God himself in Christ. Yes, it is the everlasting gospel. And it is the gospel that needs to be preached in these last days. And lastly, on Saturday, I'm just going to briefly say, this was Second Chronicles 13 and 14. I wonder why I got that. There was, it didn't seem to be that much in it. But it says this in, um, there's a few verses that do stand out. God wants to teach us to trust him no matter how difficult the trials will be in our lives. To learn to rest and trust him to bring us through, that he has his purpose that is created through it. That's all I can say. It would be too much to read all these verses. For example, verse 14 of chapter 10, chapter 14, verse 10. Then Hazel went out against him, and they set the battle in array in the valley of Zephathah. And this is against one million and their army was way smaller. And Hazza cried unto the Lord his God and said, the Lord, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Hazza, and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. So, I'm just going to leave it at that, and I thank you for the privilege of being able to do this. And my prayer is that this message would get out, would spread, and that soon I would be out of the financial debt that I got myself into, into a place where God can use me to minister his word. I am spending many hours on the internet doing internet marketing right now for things I really believe in and hoping and praying that I'll get out of this crisis soon. And I'm on the verge of that possibly really happening. But do pray for me as well. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name. God bless you all.